Good morning. Welcome to Another Words. I'm your host, Susan Share. And my guest today is, oh, this is one of my favorite guests ever, is Bob Clendenin. Now, you may not know the name. The average person doesn't. But he's one of those actors you go, oh, him. Yeah, I know who he is. And I, it, did I get that about right, Bob? Uh, yeah, I tend to, I tend to, I tend to lurk a little. <laughs> well, yes, that's that's one of the things. Uh, what well, your brand, as they call it now, as an actor, yeah. is really the creepy dude. <laughs> I guess, I guess it has sort of fallen into that box. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I mean, fine, fine by me. Well, that's the thing. Clearly, you can do other stuff. I mean, you can when you choose to which is probably most of the time, look quite normal. Right, right. Um, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's so interesting how you end up for, sort of falling into a box and, uh, you know, the, um, the old adage was, oh, you don't want to get typecast. But I think, in, especially in today's market, the, um, the ability to sort of know exactly what, what purpose you serve can, can help um, a lot of, uh, particularly like character actors, you know. Um, mm mm-hmm. What ingredient are you? What, what? I'm sorry? What uh, ingredient? What, uh, oh, what, yeah, uh, yeah. How do you fit into the mix? Yeah. Exactly. And that's, that, that segues beautifully into one of the questions I had planned to ask you. Right. How do you comfortably accept that? I mean, it's easier, I'm sure. I mean, you know, like, you, as an actor, you have to deal with what you have. Like right. there, there comes a time when a fat actor says, "I'm a fat actor," or "I'm an <laughs> ugly." Well, they do, you yeah, know. Sure. Not not the dieting actor who's going to be thin, but you know, I'm the fat actor, or I'm. And this one, I think, would be very difficult to accept. I'm the ugly actor. It's not that I think people right. are ugly, but I think they are often deemed ugly. Um, right. So, how difficult was it? For you to accept the weird guy, you know, it really hasn't been. I'm, I joke about it, and I think sometimes, it, it, you know, it, um, uh, my wife says, "Oh, you know, don't don't play that card first. and uh, and you know, I don't I don't mean to. I think um, there's something to be said for just accepting what what who you are and the and the um, the beauty of what we all have, and not attempting to fit yourself into a mold that doesn't that doesn't feel quite right um mm-hmm. it's about a sort of acceptance of who you are and what what makes you special and unique and and interesting um and as i age the idea of of um being beautiful and uh you know sought after is not as is not i find people with um, with character in their face far more interesting and far more um intriguing to me as a viewer and so oh, yeah. i embrace it as an actor as well yeah, oh yeah, I remember when I finally got that I had aged out of the ingenue and I was not a leading lady. I'm a character actor. Yeah. And it's much and more fun. Sort of a it's a lot more fun. It's a lot more interesting. Um, it's a lot more freeing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know that uh, a lot of times, particularly for people as they age, you know, out of the like, leading role categories, it's, that's a tough pill to swallow at first. Uh, yeah, actually, now that you mention it, it was so long ago that I don't remember. But yeah, I I was I wanted to play the leads, 
And that's not who I am. I'm the quirky best friend. I'm not as quirky as you tend to be, but (laughs) I still get the fun stuff. Sure, yeah. Okay. And and I think accepting that can end up really helping you as an actor. Um, And, you know, you're not fighting against the tide. Mm -hmm. Now, do you still, um, earlier in your career, I know you did a lot of other kinds of roles, including, well, you do a lot of comedy now, yes, of course. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I saw that you, I mean, you did Shakespeare, you did um, right. all kinds of stuff. Do you and I still, still try to. That was the next question. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so I you, do, I, st- I definitely still try to. It's um, just for my own. Um, sanity to have mm-hmm. uh, enough of a variety and to feel that I'm actually um, gr- growing as an actor. Um, I'm, do, you know, I do. Uh, I started a theater company with some people probably 20 oh. years ago, and I'm still very active with them. And I'm doing a play now, which is oh. not a role that I would normally do, but it was, it's it's a good opportunity for me to be to actually be the normal straight. I'm playing just a, a normal decent priest and it's not a role that i would ever probably get cast in on tv um Mm -hmm. so it's a good and it's not you know it's just it's just for me personally as an actor it's a nice challenge that um that i wouldn't normally get and i think it's it's really helpful to me in my other work uh and it keeps me not um it keeps me from going a little bit stir crazy if you feel like the box you're in is too tight yeah, I can understand that. I also know that actors who were trained in theater um, always want to go back to it. It's not that they want to give yeah. up the other. No. But tell I me about your theater. Tell me about your theater uh, group. Well, we started in the mid '90s, and there was a bunch of recent grads. I would just um, come out of here, come out um, <clears throat> here from Penn State, uh, from them. Here Penn being program. Los Angeles. To, I'm sorry, to Los Angeles, right? And then, mm-hmm. um, and I re- ran into a couple other Penn State grads and a couple other um, uh, MFA people from the University of Washington, and we all sort of knew each other, sort of um, through one or two degrees of separation, and mm-hmm. we were all sort of in our early. 30s or late 20s and we were a little bit frustrated or disillusioned with the kind of theater that we were seeing in Los Angeles which was very showcase oriented <laughs> you know it was um yes. you know it's people that want to get an agent or get casting directors and those them so we'll do very very sort of self-involved pieces that are just it's not it's not the kind of theater that we did when we were you know in school and training and wanting to be theater professionals. So we're like, well, I want to do that more. And so the six of us started this theater company. It was probably 1995 or 96. And we had, um, you know, a fair amount of success really early on and still a very strong, one of the stronger LA, um, they call them waiver theater companies. It's a small, small house, 99 seats or less. And uh, Uh, let me, let me explain to the listeners what uh, waiver theater means. It means that an ex, an equity actor, equity is the stage acting union. And it means that even though the theater is not uh, equity, equity actors can do it. Okay, Correct. go ahead. So, yeah, because, I mean, these poor little theaters would never survive um, if they needed to, had to pay equity wages. But here we have, like, a lot of Los Angeles actors who make their living doing TV and film and want the theater to be able to 
um, you know, stretch them as an actor or do work that they're not normally doing. And so equity affords them a little bit of latitude in, in doing that. And so, so that's what, what play- the labor theaters are. Okay. So what, what uh, play are you doing now? Oh, wait, first, uh, what's a, the name? What is the name of oh, your company? Um, uh, Cir- uh, Circle X, the Circle X Theater. Mm. And it started, the story behind it is actually kind of interesting, where um, two of our founders were uh, at Ellis Island and going through the, mu- the museum there. And the system they had for um, assessing uh, immigrants as they came to the country was to look at their medical history. If they had, um, if they had certain issues... Uh, that needed to be dealt with, dealt with medically, you know, uh, pneumonia or TB or something, they got an X on their lapel. If they were deemed to be, <laughs> um, if they were deemed to be outside the norm, or mm-hmm. if they were thought to be, you know, um, ha- Not- uh, hazardous or, or uh, just, a, a, you know, a, any kind of something outside the normal society, they got an X with a circle around it. And so... They thought that was extremely interesting <laughs> and very telling for who we were, so we became Circle X. That and makes a, a lot of symbol. sense. Our logo is a little, you know, X with a circle around it, just like it would be on your lapel at Ellis Island. <laughs> That's a great story. I love that. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so what are you doing now? Oh, so right now we're doing um, – we, our, our mission statement really wanted us to focus on doing um, – uh, either first produced or very, very rarely done um, productions uh, or reinvent standard productions, uh, you know, in a way that had not been done before. Um, and so this is a new play. Okay. Although let, me, let, me, let me translate this for the listeners again who don't, underst- who don't know much about uh, theater or acting. Good. What he is saying is the play that you, that you go to Broadway to see, you're not going to see here. You're not going to see a revival of Oklahoma. Uh, you're going to yeah, you're going to see plays that are either making their theatrical debuts and that you know that were just written have never been performed before, or perhaps if they're going to do Romeo and Juliet, then uh, the Capulets and Montagues might be rival gangs or something like that. Correct, right, and so okay. yeah, um, so not not a lot less Neil Simon and a lot more um, really uh, you know up and coming or never seen playwrights. Um, that was that was what we wanted to focus on, uh, and so right now we're doing this play called An Undivided Heart um, by Yusuf Toporov, um, and it's a very it's a really interesting play about um, some of the scandals that plagued the ca- the, the Catholic Church but intertwined with, if you remember, um, a couple of those cases in the 90s, like Kerr-McGee, where chemical companies were held liable for um, cancer-causing materials that were dumping into the water streams. Uh, Aaron Brockovich. Correct, exactly, exactly. So Mm -hmm. those two um, storylines come together in this play um, in a pretty interesting way. Um, And as you can imagine, it's not particularly funny, but it's a really, I think it's a really interesting um, piece, and we've got some great actors, and it's uh, and it's just you know super fun to do right now. Are you comfortable with naming some of the actors? Uh, sure. Um, uh, Matthew Gillenstein plays the the lead priest. Uh, Alana um, Alana Dietz plays the lead uh, woman. Um, oh, you might know. I know who you know. Uh, John Getz. Oh yeah, is a character guy who you if you pull him up you'll recognize him immediately. He's on every show 
Um, and he's the cardinal of the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Um, Tim Wright. We've got a, number, a bunch of really strong L.A.-based actors. Um, the last play I did that, with... Wait a minute. Um, that, that's something I also want to tell the audience. Just because you've never heard of or maybe even never seen an actor doesn't mean they are not successful in that they are not making their uh, living off acting. A lot of actors do even though you oh, have absolutely. no idea who they are. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, I, I think most people don't understand that. Okay. Yeah, I just well, pulled also, up David Getz. What, what was his name? Or David? John Getz. Uh, John, John. John Getz. Uh, G-E-T-Z. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Right, he always... He always seen him all the, the time. Um, the fairly kind slimy, like, yeah. white-collar, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. board member, corporate guy, corporate raider, mm-hmm. attorney. That's yeah. his sort of... Uh, um, but like I did the last play I did with Circle X was this um, remarkable play called Trevor about a woman who raises a chimpanzee, and um, <laughs> it was and the woman was Laurie Metcalf. Oh my! <laughs> um, and she was unbelievable. The chimp was she a guy did. named uh, uh, was a guy named um, Jimmy Simpson who you should also look up. Uh, he's in, right now he's in Westworld. He's in uh, a USA series. He was uh, on House of Cards for a long time. It's Jimmy, J-I-M-M-I. Oh, yeah, here it is. Yeah. Um, um, and he's, the two of them, watching Jimmy and Lori was just remarkable. And that show won, it really swept here in Los Angeles. It won Best New Play, of Best Original, Best Small Theater, Best Ensemble. It was really, um, really a remarkable production. A pretty crazy play. Um, So, you know, it's... And it's what you were saying earlier about, um, you know, measuring success... You were not talking about success, but actually people making their living who we don't necessarily Uh know. Mm -hmm. You know, I think the the general... The country doesn't know that there's... Because they know the, the stars... Mm-hmm. Clooney and all those guys. There's a huge section of just these sort of middle class working actors who, and I would count myself in that category, who cobble together a, a living generally without a, a day job, but it's done through, you know, you do a couple commercials, you've got some voiceovers, you might do a industrial here and there. Um, maybe you get a TV gig that's two or three episodes. But so it's, And then those people can end up, if they're, if they're lucky and things go well, you know, doing that for 10, 15, 20 years, uh, and you'd never know their names. Um, but they just, uh, they're, the, they're the sort of the working horses of the, of the film and TV industry. Don't live extravagantly, live, you know. But live well. Normal lives. And, yeah, but live okay, and you can pay your bills, and you can, mm-hmm. you know. Take family vacations. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's, and, and I think a lot of people don't know, uh, that there's that huge middle section. It's either, well, you're either no. Clooney or you're waiting tables, and there is a big middle ground. Huge middle ground. There are lots and lots of actors that uh, make a decent living that you've never heard of, partly because not all acting is broadcast. It's not all television and movies and theater. There's no, a large... Now. Yeah, because yeah, the Internet's a whole other thing. But um, industrials, like... You all Absolutely. remember your first job where they showed you a training video. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Yeah, 
and a lot of people do that and you can and you can do a bunch of those you can do some regional commercials and and maybe you have to supplement every once in a while by picking up a shift somewhere but that's sort of the the lifestyle you sign on for i think when you go into this profession which mm-hmm. can be exciting yeah. it can also be just awful you know depending on mm-hmm. <laughs> where you are um i have to ask you where are you <laughs> Oh me! I'm actually on a the middle of a um, hike with my pug. Oh, that would be Marge. Uh, that's Marge, correct? Yes. Okay. Okay. Well, good. You're outdoors then. Now, I have got to ask you something because I've been staring at this picture and I really need to know. I'm looking on your site at the uh, at your theatrical reel, and yeah. What is in your left hand? Because it looks like bread with blood on it. Oh, shoot. Can you describe which picture it is? Yeah, you're feeding the monkey. You're not looking at him. Oh, oh, oh. No. Oh, wow. I never even looked at what's in my hand. It's um, half of the peanut butter sandwich that I was eating. I think. Oh, okay. If I correctly. Okay. And the other. I can't remember. It's it's not a a banana. It was a pilot we did. Um, called Wildlife, which didn't go to series. It was just about a bunch of really weird people that work at a zoo. And <laughs> it was really, really fun to shoot because, I mean, we shot with all these great animals. I had a boa around my neck at one point. We were feeding giraffes cool. and penguins, stuff like that. Uh, and I'm a huge animal lover, so it was great. Uh, but that scene was just me and a monkey sitting on the bench and him helping himself to my lunch. But I don't remember what I was eating. I'd have to look at the picture again, but the jelly. There I was, would there was believe. nothing. There was nothing sinister about it. Okay, <laughs> I figured. I, yeah. I figured there wasn't, but it really looks like blood on bread. Okay. I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll definitely. I'll take a look at it. <laughs> okay. Speaking of how things look, I ran across a number of very interesting pictures of you. Um, oh, this. <laughs> this what? Is why do you do so much drag? I do do a lot of drag, don't I? Yeah. I think because people, I, you know, it's not necessarily that I speak it, but I think a lot of people love to put me in a dress. Probably because you're so tall and so clearly not a woman. <laughs> yeah, kind of like, kind of like, yeah. <laughs> do you remember the uh, Bud Light or Budweiser commercial where these guys dressed up as women to get in on ladies' night? Because buds oh, were it was, cheaper than couldn't be less. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean mustaches, yeah. beards. Yeah. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. yeah there's a little I'm... bit of that. I know, but it, and it happened across uh, across a couple platforms. I know that I. You're probably looking at there's one picture from the Utah Shakespeare Festival where I was playing uh, a very off-center emperor. That's the one with the long purple dress. Yes, that's the one I'm the looking white, at right now. Yeah. yeah, that was Titus Andronicus and. Um, oh, oh, wait, no, no, freak. not that one, not that one. That is, that's the long. I was looking at the long purple skirt. Yeah, this was not uh, the Titus Andronicus is not drag. It's just the director's and costume designer's idea of Roman, isn't it? Correct. Although this guy was in, was particularly uh, Caligula like, so there was a, oh, okay. some and- androgyny and some. Yeah, they wanted to okay. freak him up as much as possible. No, they did a good job. Um, I think I did a. I did a. Uh, there was an episode in Cougar Town where we were recreating. We were Civil War reenactors, and of course, oh. I had to have a hoop skirt. Well, not just a hoop skirt. You look like Little Bo Peep. I do. I do. That was yeah. elaborate. 
and I yeah. put sprints in it. Um, <laughs> yeah, what we do, what we do for a paycheck. Yeah, well, that just brings up such an interesting picture, <laughs> sprinting in a hoop skirt. <laughs> yep. Because hoop yep, skirts yep, were yep. definitely not built for that. They were not. They were not designed for that. But uh, why are you? The, but why are you the six foot two guy put in that powder blue hoop skirt with the frilly you know, collar? I I honestly can't answer that. I think that maybe that just seemed to be funnier than um, than the opposite. Well, that makes uh, plus sense. Also, given given the show, though, the the way the show that particular show—I don't know if you ever watched it—but um, no. my relationship with the other, with the gang in the show, if anybody's going to be stuck wearing the hoop skirt, it's going to be me. Oh, okay. I was just thinking. You said uh, kind of like you were the most unlikely one. I remember doing a play, and this guy. We we did a um, play at the. Uh, play that wasn't the play it was just sort of a showcase and this one guy he's right. dressed up as a girl and he's six two and yep. looks like and he hates this but he looks like he's wearing a sweater when he has nothing on <laughs> and yeah. so that they put him in a sleeveless shift oh beautiful and yeah yeah what show so any this? oh this was i was doing stock and we were doing state fair at the time, but the, all the interns, uh, listeners, uh, summer stock has interns, which means basically they do all the work and don't get paid. Um, and they did their own little uh, talent show, and they did the the scene from uh, from um, Chicago. You know the right. the nice. right yeah. Yeah, and so they were all dressed up as as women, but the other, well, actually, only one of them was anywhere near decent looking. Um, <laughs> it's funny because you know, like I'm thinking of Gene Hackman in um, uh, Birdcage. Oh sure, yeah. And now, I he did an, an incredibly good job. I know that. But I have to think one of the reasons he was uh, cast in that role is that there's nobody else who could have done it who would look quite so ugly as a woman. I mean, <laughs> yeah. he's, he has a an attractive. And, and a very handsome man. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, well, I don't know yeah. that I'd call him handsome, but tremendously attractive. Exactly, sure. But, oh my gosh, was he an ugly not, woman. Not so much as a woman. That's not a good woman. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, very true. So, what about the purple look skirt? At that again. Oh, birdcage. But birdcage yeah, is would, always yeah. good to watch again. Um, now, which purple skirt is that? What photo is that? Wild West. It looks like you've got a turquoise oh, bodice. Sure sure, 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 sure. Yeah, we were. This was a show called Quick Draw. It was on uh -huh. Hulu, and mm -hmm. we. Um, it was a fantastic show. It was a, it was a fully improvised Western, um, <laughs> which is amazing. Uh, you know, I think sometimes it was, the show was great. Sometimes it was less great because that's sort of the nature of improv. Um, mm -hmm. but it was a, just a blast to do. And so the way the series worked is the, the um, creators would write a story outline it was basically two or three pages that would just take us through the plot points of this particular episode, but no mm -hmm. dialogue would be written. And so the actors would come to set, 
And Nancy, the director, would say, okay, this is what's just happened. This is some of the information I need you to find a way to get out during the course of the scene. Uh, other than that, let's just, you know, take a stab at it, and we'll we'll film it with three cameras, and then we'll sort of do it again and maybe add some things, take some things out, to see what's working, and do it, you know, for a couple hours, two or three hours, and eventually the scene would take shape, and um, lines would get funnier, and the less funny ones would get axed, and, um, <laughs> you know, it would come together. And it was really, really a, a phenomenally fun and cool way to work. Uh, and so that was that picture you're looking at was a particular episode where we went undercover as um, ladies of the night mm-hmm. to uh, infiltrate a, um, a gang that was holed up in the hills. Uh, oh and gosh. as you can see, we couldn't be a less desirable group of ladies of the night. Well, and the other uh, guy didn't even get boobs. You at least got boobs. I did get some boobs, yeah. Yeah, he didn't get contract. any. Oh, oh, was yeah, it? Okay, got it, yeah. Yeah, I Got to negotiate these things beforehand, yeah. You absolutely do. Uh, so anyway, so that was we are kidding, that listeners. <laughs> we are kidding about that. <laughs> Go ahead. So anyway, that was a very, very Okay, that story. was that one. Um, and then there's, I see this one, you're in a yellow cardigan, uh, pink flower uh, dress. God, you're right. I, that is, it is a lot. Now that you're starting to lay them out, that's a lot. These are on your uh, website, Bob. To, <laughs> I know. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to. Oh, oh, hang on one second. Early. One, one okay. second. Just to remind listeners, you're listening to In Other Words with your host, Susan Sharon. I'm talking to really cool actor, Bob Clendenin, whom you have seen, even if you don't know the name. Okay, so you were telling me about the yellow sweater. Yeah, and so that was another show called Ten Items or Less um, on PBS. And, oh, that ties us together. That was an undercover episode. We (laughs) we worked in a supermarket, and I was going undercover to... uh, to see if we could catch some shoplifters. One thing you have uh, to know, listeners. Like my grandmother. Yeah. What one thing you have to know, listeners, is that Bob has a heavy five o'clock shadow. In almost always everything. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. go ahead. I'm sorry. You were undercover. So I was undercover, and we were we were looking to bust some shoplifters at the grocery store, and I don't know why I was dressed up as a grandmother. How we justified it, but you know, because it's funny. You just have to. With comedy, you just got to go, you know what? We're just doing it because it's fun. Yeah. Uh-huh. And what about, uh, now you're not dressed in drag here, but you were dressed in uh, 70s clothes, which could be mistaken for drag. They're definitely androgynous. You know, Is that with the blonde wig? Yes, and the yellow, ridiculous bell-bottoms. They're probably polyester, yeah, too. That was actually the same show. The same show, 10 items or less, really loved to spend as much of their money on wardrobe budget as they possibly could. <laughs> um, so I don't remember. I Honestly, that was it was probably 10 or 15 years ago. I don't remember why, how we justified, whether it was a flashback sequence, um, or why I was like a Spinal Tap 1970s mm-hmm. metal. Um, again, but it was funny. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, it we was. got away with it. And the yeah. pants are very clingy. You're either padded or very clingy. well yeah, sculpted. Was... But you got a nice butt. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. <laughs> you got you. a nice butt. <laughs> You're welcome. Those are the old days, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> if there is any... Actually, the 80s, fashion-wise, was worse than the 70s. But 
Oh, I think so. The 80s has a lot to apologize for. Yes, it did you does. Go, did you, I was just talking with a friend of mine about this. Did you do the flash dance? Did you tear a sweatshirt or um, wear leggings? No, I did okay. not. I was socially inept. So, so what about the new wave part of the 80s with um, the hair and the large shoulder pads? and the sort Yes, of, uh, oh yes. Not the hair. Not the hair. You saw me, and though it was briefly, you might be able to understand why I didn't have the big hair. Um, right, right. Yeah, my hair just will not do that. Uh, no amount of hairspray could make it do that. But, but yes, the shoulder pads, oh my gosh, shoulder pads. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, if everything's cyclical, those are, gonna, those are due for a return then. Yeah, within the decade, you know, you're I mean, probably right. We're, we're 30 or 40 years later, and that's about what the turnaround mm-hmm. is before we start yeah. seeing some of these things happen again. Yeah. Now, you're uh, talking about improv. I want to go back to that for a minute. You have, well, every stage actor learns improv because, let's face it, when you're on stage, if you forget a line or do something wrong, you can't say, cut, take two. Uh, you have to fig- you have to find your way out of it, and so you learn partly through training, partly through experience, how to get yourself out or anyone else on stage with you out of anything they get themselves into. However, you went above and beyond that. You were in several improv groups, weren't you? I was. I started in college um, with a friend of mine, and ju- I didn't know much about it, but he did. He came from a sort of a more of a theatrical upbringing than I did. And um, we started this improv group at, at Cornell, and, um, and I just loved it, you know, and I learned a mm-hmm. huge amount, and I kept doing it. And it's been very, you know, I didn't pursue it when I got to Los Angeles, which is a little bit of a regret of mine, mm-hmm. um, which I can talk about later. But uh, I think, it's like you said, it's a really, really beneficial tool to have, even if – you're only doing scripted stuff, um, it helps really inform decisions that you make. You can um, start tweaking lines a little bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, Commercially, they often, so often ask you to, you know, um, tweak whatever outline they've got for a commercial Mm -hmm. idea. Um, and I think improv, an improv background can really, really be helpful to, uh, to actors out here for that reason. i got to tell you, you'll, you'll um, like this story. For a little while, the, this guy and I in, in, in Atlanta, we did a series of Hardee's commercials. And um, they couldn't figure out how to end the commercial. So, or, you know, very often, listeners, you're supposed to, like, fade out in the end, but you can't physically do that. <laughs> right. so, you, so you have to give them some words there so that the engineer can fade it out, which means you pretty much have to make them up. And they liked what I made up so much that they kept putting it in. And they'd sure. say, no, we're yeah. not going to fade out on that. And, 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 and I just, <laughs> just kept doing that. And one time in another yeah. commercial, they were not sure how to end it. And they said, okay, we figured it out. We're going to end it here and you're going to improvise something really funny. Yeah, um, that's exactly right. Yeah, but the thing is, now I could never, or I'm not going to say could never, but I do not see myself as an improv artist. I can improvise when I have to, and I can be pretty quick on my feet, but true improv takes a lot more than that, and I can see that in your work, because one of the things you do, you are 
I, I'm sure this has a lot to do with why you get cast. You're so inventive. Like there's oh, one part. Well, you are. There's this one scene where you're directing something and you're telling people what to do, and you pick something off of your shirt, which is not there. Um, my invisible lint, yeah. Yeah, and, and throw it, and not only toss it off, but watch it fly away. Right, right. And, you know, while going on with the lines, yeah. was it? Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, well, thank you. That's, very, that's, a, that's a huge compliment. Um, that's very flattering. Uh, but that is why you get cast. That is sometimes I, why you get cast, isn't it? I, th- I think so. I think it is, especially why I think it's why I get recast with a lot of the same people. Like when they, well, just like you did with the Hardy's commercial. When that person has worked with you and knows that you can be relied upon to, to you know, help flesh out a script that, or mm-hmm. or add a couple, you know, a tagline that, you know, uh, can take them out of the commercial. When they know mm-hmm. that you can be relied on to do that, they're going to be far more. Um, uh, um, desirous to work with you again. So, like, mm-hmm. a lot of the shows I've done have been for the same people, you know, like, or I'll start on a, I'll, I'll do an episode of something, and it'll then turn into four episodes, because they just like um, how you meld into the cast, how you work, and what you come up with. Now, so Bob, I think that's... Go, go ahead. ahead. Um, I, Bob is downplaying this, folks. Because generally, when someone is cast for one episode, they do one episode. It is quite unusual for the writers and directors and everybody to say, no, I, I want him back. Let's write him in again. So he's, Bob is, is tossing this off like it's just part of the business. But it's not. It's extraordinary. Well, it's a, it's a nice pat on the back because it says, oh, we, you know what, we like you enough that we'd like to keep going with this and we'll, we'll write around it. And that's, and that's flattering that they're, they do that because they don't have to. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, yeah. So, but I also, when you were talking about your improv experience, I was going to say don't, don't sell yourself short because I think a lot of these are like, um, it's just a matter of being put into that situation. Like, as you say, improv shows are entirely different than, you know, doing minor improvisations when you're in a commercial audition. You know, it's a different mm-hmm. structure. You're doing different things. But it's also something that you can easily adapt to once you've, once you've been thrown into that world. If you have, oh. as an actor, if you're sort of free enough that you're willing to just try, you know, it's going to take a couple, a couple rehearsals and a couple shows before you go like, oh, yeah, I can do this. This is not that different than what I was doing in whatever commercial room, you know, a month ago. Well, that's interesting. Thanks for telling me that. Um, uh, I really believe that. Okay. Yeah, because another thing, you know, as you were saying that, it occurred to me that part of the reason I am reluctant to do that is fear of failure and looking stupid because I, I can't come up with anything. Yeah. So this would be a great way to get past that fear, wouldn't it? It would. And I would also add something which is I think that there's a mistake made by a lot of actors in thinking that to be a good improviser you need to be coming up with funny stuff and I think that that's a fallacy because I think when I've gone to shows or when I'm working with other people the most interesting people are the ones who just generally um, uh, submerse themselves in the scene and just listen you know you if you're really 
actively listening and involved in the scene, that normal human reaction can just be um, hilarious on its own. You don't need to be like a Robin Williams that's constantly coming up with funny bits or funny lines or that your mind is going a thousand miles an hour. I think being grounded and honest in a scene is exactly what, um, you know, really good improv does. That is really good to hear. Because, well, for one thing, as a teacher, one of the things I tell my students is what is the most important thing an actor does? And the answer is listen. Yeah, um, 100%. And, yeah. And that, that kind of never occurred to me with improv. I thought you had to constantly be coming up with stuff. But the truth is, when I do comedy, I'm generally the straight man. The listener, yeah. Yeah. Well, and Which, I, I can't tell you how many commercials I've booked because, you know, the sometimes pair you up and they'll bring you in with somebody and if they're and if they've got they want you to riff on a situation or whatever mm-hmm. very often there's an there are actors i think generally a little less experienced who think well i'm just gonna I'm, if, if, if i don't stop talking then the attention is always on me and i think that, that <laughs> you end up shooting yourself in the foot because the person who's going to book it is the one who's just very subtly listening maybe making a very very uh imperceptible you know um, eye movement, head cock, a little, you know, mm-hmm. and not the guy who's just, who won't shut up. Um, I, yeah. I noticed when uh, Friends, the TV show Friends, was in its first season, there was always a camera on David Schwimmer. Uh, he wasn't always uh-huh. the one that, yeah, but they, I, I'm sure they always had it on him because they'd cut to him for reactions. Yep. 100%. Yeah, they always 100%. knew that. Yeah. By, by the way, again, audience, because we're talking, speaking a language that a lot of you don't understand, um, straight man is the one who sets up the joke, not the one who tells the joke. But <laughs> without a good straight man, the joke is not funny. Uh, right. And, and so, yeah, the straight man is actually a harder role to play. But... Yeah. It's kind of like baseball, if the Kevin Costner movies are to be, be, be believed. The pitcher gets all the glory, but it's the catcher running the show. <laughs> right. so, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah so, a great analogy. Is that actually the way it is in baseball? Uh, you know, I, I don't know enough to answer that. My son plays, but oh. uh, I, I, would, I would be out, out of my pay grade if I answered that. Okay. What position does he play? He's a pitcher. Oh, I'll ask him. Okay, yeah. He's built like me. He's like a praying mantis. <laughs> Not the description I would have thought, come up with, but uh, it kind no. of fits. You know, if you see it, you go, oh, you were right. Yeah. <laughs> How old is your son? Uh, he's 15. I got two. I have a 15-year-old and a 12-year-old. Because my nephew is 17, and he's a pitcher. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Oh, he, so he's probably a high school senior, yeah? Yes, Yes, he's he's already is gonna, looking. Is he so good? Is he good enough to play college um, baseball? Well, he's about to find out. That's fantastic. That is the intention, yeah. So. Well, I wish him luck. That's, uh, that's I, a, will, it's, I don't think uh, professional sports is probably uh, up there with uh, acting in terms of being a um, a real gamble of a career. That is actually a pretty good analogy. Uh, partly because 
in both professions, talent does make a difference, but it's nowhere near enough. Well, actually, in uh, yeah. sports it is. In sports it is. I isn't think it? sports are probably slightly more, um, what's the word where it's, you know, when decisions are justified. Uh, or it's Achievement? more merit-based. Merit-based, yeah, there I you go. Sports, yeah. Um, that's true. Acting, I, I actually make the analogy, like when I've done a couple talks and stuff for young younger actors, I make mm-hmm. the analogy that it's a lot like um, deciding to be a professional gambler. In that, <laughs> um, well, what you do is you, you know, people who play poker or blackjack professionally, there are rules or, you know, guidelines that you follow to play smart. And well, they'll tell you they the don't right. gamble. They will tell you they don't gamble. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's all math-based. And, mm-hmm. and, and yeah. You can, but here's the trick is that you can do everything right um, in terms of following those rules and still mm-hmm. end up losing. And you can have somebody who um, does everything wrong and wins $10,000. And you're like, wait a minute. That doesn't seem fair. And I find that that same thing happens in the acting profession where – you know, you can do everything smart. You go to the right classes. You do um, mailers the way you're supposed to. You do plays, and you just have no success. And then some guy gets off the bus with no training whatsoever and ends up having a series. And you're like, that's not fair. I, right. You know, um, but it's just the way it is. Did you know that that pretty much is what happened to Robert Redford? I mean, he was trained, but... First thing he did was Barefoot in the Park. For those of you that don't know, that was a Neil Simon play. It was a play on Broadway before it became a movie. And, well, Neil Simon pretty much means it's a hit. And it was. And then he was picked to play the role in the movie. And (laughs) he's one of those people. Now, he did have the training. He did have the goods. But, yeah, it's not fair. (laughs) It's not fair. And, you, and you know, you've got it all over, particularly Los Angeles. I know where you are, the same is true. You have people who have been doing it for 20 years and just have not managed to get that break. And mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's frustrating because you feel like I'm doing, I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do, and it just isn't happening. So it's a, it's, a weird, it's a weird profession for that reason. It is. And that's why very often parents will say have something to fall back on by the way George Clooney's father said that to him and you know just just go to college so you have something to fall back on if this doesn't work and he said (laughs) he said if I have something to fall back on I may quit before I should Uh, now now one advantage I don't know much about George Clooney I know a lot about Rosemary Clooney and I only know about George as his life intersects with hers one of the things that made it much easier for him is that he didn't have to worry about supporting himself when he was trying to make enough it. of a little nest egg. No, because he lived with his aunt. Oh right, his right. aunt Rosemary, and she she fed him, you know. Um, so he had to make some money, but he didn't have to worry about supporting himself, and that is oh huge difference. That is probably what gets in the way, gets in an actor's way more than anything else, having to live. <laughs> just, yeah, you've got to pay your bills. Mm-hmm. It gets in yeah. the way. 
Has Marge found something interesting? Is that why she's barking so much right now? Uh, that's actually not Marge. That's somebody she's oh. walking past. Uh, dog oh. in the yard is um, angry. I think that Marge has freedom. Well, right, she does exactly. Not. Yeah, Mar- that's what Marge I was thinking. Marge is not a barker. She's a panter right now. She you can't hear her. She's panting pretty hard because the pugs, the pugs in their breathing is a little bit uh, <laughs> interesting. Yeah. But um, okay. but she's not a, not a barker. Okay, well, that's good. I prefer dogs who can bark but generally don't, just as I prefer right. people who can talk, can yell but generally don't. Um, uh, choose not to. Yeah. Uh, now, I want to go back a little bit for a minute because your first attempted foray into acting was not at all encouraging. Is this my I'm high talk- school? No, you're... Church of England Boys Grammar School. Yes. This was, this was yeah. in Australia. Correct. Um, yeah, and then you're, you put in your bio, yes, and it was as relaxed and free-spirited as it sounds, um, which is to say, <laughs> not at all. Um, not at all. A boys' school with, we, really, we literally did wear those little shorts, knee-high socks, mm-hmm. and cap. <laughs> and cap. Maybe did, they explain some of my, uh, my problems as an adult. Probably does, yeah. When you put it yeah. that way, and yeah. were you were you um, slapped on the palm with a ruler? There was corporal punishment. Yeah, absolutely. They, uh, I never got it because I, I kept my nose fairly clean. But yes, mm-hmm. people there would actually get there was they would have canings. You would get so the headmaster could cane wow. somebody if they if they needed it. it was, you you had to really make some poor choices to get canes. Um, mm-hmm. Normally there were just a lot of detentions, but it was definitely an option that they exercised. That's, yeah, that's interesting. Um, but you auditioned for Death of a Salesman, which should have been a shoe-in because you were the only one who had the accent, which, in fact, the director noted when he said, I only wish I could put your <laughs> accent on someone who can act. Now, that is a <laughs> terrible thing, Well, although it does fit with Church of England Boys Grammar School. Yeah, the Boys Grammar School. They, yeah. yeah, they were they were far less concerned with people with the children's feelings than uh, people tend to be now. They were not here. nurturing. Yeah, they were not nurturing self confidence. It, it was not a nurturing group at all. Yeah. it was uh, <laughs> it was pretty brutal. I know that was so. It was terrible. I still like telling that story because I feel some sort of smug satisfaction that I I kind of proved him wrong. Oh, absolutely! Um, I I would write to him and tell him. <laughs> I really would. But, uh, well, they did the uh, the school had a little a tiny little profile of me, um, uh-huh. which I know that he would have seen. So what, he may, oh. you know he probably has zero recollection of having that. In fact, it's his, in his mind, he's like, well, I, I probably nurtured him, or I, you know, he's probably created a whole fi- fiction to uh, to change the you know the narrative, um, <laughs> but. But I know that I know that he saw this little article, so there's mm-hmm. some satisfaction there. Yeah, I know. You you try to be above that sort of thing, needing a so there, but it's still yeah. nice when you it get it. It still feels good. <laughs> yeah. But it's also in the lesson, and you know, as a parent, I try to remember these little things that how much how much damage you can do with a little uh. what you think might be an innocuous comment or you know something mm-hmm. that's. But, you know, it can stay with somebody for 20 years, and they're like, oh, I never got over when you said, oh, you look like whatever. And, you know, it's like you uh, it's a good awareness to have as a parent. I bet it is. 
because you know for sure that you're going to do that sometimes. I, I would think one of the Absolutely. most comforting. I would think one of the most comforting things about parenting is knowing that you will screw up. You will yeah. leave your kids with scars. That every parent does, and the kids still manage to grow up. Yeah, that's true. That's true. We are very resilient. Yeah. Um, but part of the problem is when you do something very minor like that that affects the child that much, very often they don't even know what it was that had that effect on them, which makes it harder yeah, to get true. past. Very true, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, you, but back to school, you were interested in math and engineering. In fact, you have a degree in engineering. I do. I, uh, that, was, that was what I loved in high school, and I thought I was good at it. Um, mm-hmm. So it made sense to study it in college. Uh, and so I went into an engineering program um, back here in the States. And um, I just, there was no, no real love for it. I don't think I was necessarily mm-hmm. bad at it. I just, without the heart, um, I was never going to be great at it. And I started doing a couple plays because it just seemed like it would be a good diversion. Um, and I fell oh. in love with the people that sort of were in the theater. There could not be um, less like the engineers that I was surrounded by. You know, engineers <laughs> tend to be a little, a little uptight, a little, um, a little cerebral. And actors, particularly at college, you know, or even high school, you know, they're so full of life and they're impulsive and um, their parties were great. The, the girls were mm-hmm. pretty and. Uh, so it just made, it was like, oh, I kind of want to be with this group more. Yeah. So I, I finished the engineering degree, uh, but I kept doing plays and the improv troupe and stuff. And and I finally um, got, you know, I got some encouragement from faculty saying, you know, you are good if you want, if this is something you really want to consider, you might want to go to graduate school, get get some training, which you haven't been able to get. And so that's what I did right after college i went into a, a master's um program in acting mm-hmm. and uh and did that so i never worked as an engineer which is probably fortunate for people going over bridges and oh yeah and tunnels but yeah it's a good um, point but i'm not making those things but <laughs> um you, know, you find now, your calling now did you i i seem to recall reading that you did work for your father for a while uh no. Uh, no, I'm no. mixing up your bio with you're, somebody you're, else's. Okay. You're mixing up my bio with somebody else. Yeah. <laughs> did you ever do any? I mean, once you were out of school, did you have to take another job? Yes. Um, when I got to Los Angeles, um, I had a cu- several survival jobs. I, wa- I worked in a bakery, uh, in the customer service room of a bakery that made muffin mm-hmm. baskets. Um, and I tutored for uh, one of those SAT preparation companies. It was called uh-huh. the Princeton Review, like oh, yeah. Kaplan. Mm-hmm. They do SAT classes, and they were really a really good survival job because it was fairly flexible, and you always had people who could cover for you, you know, like a restaurant mm-hmm. job. Right, um, right. So if, if a job or audition came up, um, I could get coverage for it it was a you're, you're mm-hmm. kind of with fun cool people who all tended to be actors or writers or directors and so um that was just a good a good survival job um which i had for probably two or three i'd say it was probably two or three years in los angeles before i started working enough that i was able to 
to leave the survival jobs and, and just make enough from um, TV and, and commercials. Okay. Well, that's not long. No. I think yeah. in the scheme of things, I was pretty lucky. I think that was, that's a pretty short window. I and do think I would... that too often... Go oh, ahead. Go ahead. Well, well, I, I, I think too often here people don't give enough time. Like I know I've had um, friends and acquaintances who've come here and nothing happens for a year and they get frustrated and they leave. And it's like you've got to kind of carve out two, three, yeah. even four years for you to just get your feet wet, to get a job, to get a survival job, to find a place to live, to start making those connections with other actors or filmmakers or student filmmakers or whatever that you're going to start to see those things paying off and so to pull the plug after a year is i think really premature yeah um, but it still happens i mean because it's that's tough it's you know it's hard to justify you know when you feel like no you're getting no traction on anything but it's just uh, the wheels turn a little slowly well it's also this is something i've realized it really hit me hard a few years back this profession is one of rejection yeah. Most of the time, all the time, you're rejected. Almost yeah. all the time. At least 50 to 1, you're going to be rejected. Yeah. And it's not personal, but it always feels like it is. Because rejection is rejection. Yeah. And yeah. sometimes people just can't keep taking the rejection. No, it does a number on you. If you... Mm -hmm. yeah. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's like when things are going well, you're getting rejected 10 times a week. <laughs> um, you know, if things are really bad, you're not getting at all rejected at all a week because you're not auditioning. So like, so. Right. Um, and it's a, and it's a hard thing, especially if you're tying up your sort of self-worth in the approval of those decision makers when the decision keeps being no, it's really hard to not um, take that really personally and, uh, and let it upset you. And the truth is, sometimes it's because you're not good enough. But there yeah. are so many reasons why you might not get picked. I, I was um, a uh, uh, first, the first choice, one of the first two choices for a commercial. And... Um, they ended up choosing the other woman. I knew if they cast the brown-haired boy, they'd cast her. The boy I auditioned with was blonde, like me. And I knew it depended on the, on the boy, because it's much easier to get a talented adult than a talented five-year-old. So yeah. that's why I didn't get that one. Sometimes you're too tall. Sometimes your voice is too low or too high. I mean, there are a million reasons why, I mean, I'm using a bit of hyperbole, but there are tons of reasons why you, you might not get cast, and only one of them is that you weren't good enough. But you never yeah. know why you weren't cast. You never know. No, they'll, they'll never tell you. And, and you have, um, you know, there's, it's, so much of it is completely out of your control. You, the only thing you can control is how, how you prepare the material and what you do in the audition mm -hmm. room. And after that, it's, it's out of your hands. So to agonize over, well, should I have done this or should I have done that is really, really futile and can end up doing a kind of a head game on you. And what's also true is you will always walk out of an audition 
knowing the exact way you should have read it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so true. Yeah, if only yeah. I had done this, everything yeah. would be different. This is not mm-hmm. the case. I had a commercial director tell me, kind of admitted to me that, because um, you may or may not know, or your your listeners may not know that, you know, with commercials, which I do, I tend to do a lot of, um, mm-hmm. there are three different heads of this hydra. There's the director, but then there's also the client who, mm-hmm. um, you know, is, we're doing the commercial for, and then there's the agency, the ad agency, who are mm-hmm. overseeing the production of this whole thing. So the director is not the top of the um, food chain. You know, it's generally mm-hmm. the client, and then the agency, and then the director. And, so and keep in mind, decided, keep in mind, the client does not know acting. No, and so, very often the agency yeah. really doesn't either. Oh, okay, that I didn't know, but, but go ahead. Um, so, But so... so he would tell me that, you know, when you, when you go through the audition process, he would come up with his favorites, you know, his top three or top four actors for each role that he wants. Mm-hmm. And he said, what I do is I put my real number one choice, the, one, the guy who I really, really want, I'll put number two or three on my list. Because inevitably what happens is the agency or the client wants to feel that they are in creative control and they'll get rid of the number one, the person who's number one on the list. He says, if I put my real favorite at number two or three, they get to feel like they're creatively in control by knocking off number one, and then I still end up with the guy I always wanted in the first place. Wow, that is an amazing insight. Isn't Thank that crazy? you. Yeah, because that is one of the problems, especially well, exclusively with commercials. I think is that the client has the final say and the client does not usually know what it takes to get the mood he's going for. So true. Yeah. It's very frustrating. And so as an actor, as you know, you know, you kind of have to let a lot of what their comments are sort of roll off your back or you have to reinterpret. Mm-hmm. What is it? What, is, what do they really mean by saying that? Um, yeah. What are they hoping to get? And if you start to think, and this is true, not just for commercials, but um, for TV and film stuff, if you start to think, more like a buyer, um, I think it can help you as an as an actor. If you if you think oh. like if I was if I was the executive producer, what would I need to see in this audition from this person to make me feel like that's a good hire? And mm-hmm. if you start thinking or at least considering that in your sort of preparation, it can end up I think helping you a lot and so and make you not think, take things personally. Like you said earlier, when you give an example, look, I just need to see somebody who I believe could have a, a grandchild that's three years old. And so if I know that and I'm going to read in my early 40s, that's, it's out of my hands. I can't, I can't <laughs> control that. You know what I mean? Yeah. I have a student who goes through that all the time. She shows up to auditions. She is old enough. She's 61. But... She doesn't look it. She looks like she's like maybe 45, maybe 50, but she keeps so showing up. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And losing all these roles, and, and then she's going to start taking this personally unless she realizes, you know what, this is not me. This is, I'm just, I've been branded in the wrong category by my agent because of I was my gonna real say, age. I told her, yeah, I told her to talk to her agent because yeah. she shouldn't be going on those auditions. No, I shouldn't be, I shouldn't be in this room. I should be in, a, in the room mm-hmm. for, you know slightly older um, moms. Yeah, maybe a grandmother of an infant. 
or maybe a grandmother or an infant or the you know whatever or you know but find your the thing that you uh, mm-hmm. instead of trying to pigeonhole yourself into a box that already exists, figure out what box is right for you, you know, mm-hmm. and who you are. And also, uh, and tell me if you agree with me on this one. It seems to me, if you're going on a commercial audition, make choices as bold as possible. Do whatever comes into your head. Um, yeah. uh, I do. Agree, I do agree, but I think that um, actors need to know that what you're not saying is be as big as possible. As much energy, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, because I think, well, there's there's a, a real tra- um, tendency, and what's um, I think in favor right now is a lot mm-hmm. of very very dry humor and a lot of subtlety. So I think often you can have actors who, in an effort to ha- to have energy in the commercial, end up just being too big, too too. Yes large in terms of their facial reactions, their mm-hmm. vocally. It's just too, it just seems too actory. And the last thing that advertisers want now, and this is a big difference from, say, back in the 70s, is they don't want to ever feel that they're watching actors. They don't ever want to feel like they're seeing people act. They want to feel like a camera was just held up to real people and this is an absolute honest depiction. And so I think you need to... Well, what's the subtle? What's the you know? Mm-hmm. What's the where's the nuance? Yeah, yeah, because sense? yeah, because what I have found is that you don't get the job by giving the producer or director exactly what they ask for. You give <laughs> the, you get the job by showing them what they really want. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that's true. Which does not mean don't listen to what they say. You have to listen to what they say. But yeah. Just keep reading the lines over and over until something different pops into your head. Yeah. And then go with that. Yeah. Yeah, When I've when I've gotten good commercials, that's how I've gotten them, is because I did something that they just didn't expect. One I didn't even get a call back for, and and it destroyed me because I'm like, I did a good audition, and I know, right? Yeah, they didn't have a call back for that part. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Is that why? But you don't know that. So you're like you're gonna get into your yeah. head and start making yourself crazy, and it could be uh-huh. for any number of reasons. Yeah, that case, happened. Uh, nothing to do with yeah. it. Yeah, it it happened twice, and both times my agent had to keep repeating to me that I had gotten it because I'm like, well, I didn't do a callback, and and you know, because well, I didn't believe I gotten them. But um, yeah, be inventive, and you know, these things that we're talking about for acting listeners are really important for life. Make bold choices. Yeah. Have a lot of energy. Do something that's a little different. Not mm-hmm. just to Absolutely. be different, but because something different occurs to you. That, that's how life works, too. Yeah. So this is I not just that. Yeah. Yeah, this is yeah. a life lesson, Susan. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> this is good. I like this. <laughs> Listen, it's an hour. Do you have to cut and run now? I actually do, if you don't mind. Okay. I'm sorry to cut this short. I know that you like to tend to do a little bit longer, um, but I need to get to an appointment. Okay. Um, but this has been really, really delightful. Thank you. Okay, well, Bob, thank you so much. I, I just loved having you on today. 
Thank you, Susan. It was a huge pleasure. I really, really enjoyed talking to you. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. And you've been listening to In Other Words. I'm your host, Susan Scher. Uh, thanks for joining us. Join us again. Bye-bye.